Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday evening and every Saturday evening for enlightenment, education, entertainment, and hopefully to increase your awareness on the issues uh, primarily surrounding the aftermath of crime. Uh, But within the past six or so weeks, we have been very fortunate to have a a special series with both true crime and crime authors, and um, tonight uh, is a continuation of that, but I have to say that um, this is very special because not only do we have a budding author, uh, but we also have a person who's a seasoned detective, so that's quite a combination, and we have so much to talk about. But before we bring on Bradley Nichols, I'd like to bring on my co-host and uh, my partner in crime, my friend, Delilah Jones. Hi, Delilah. What's going on? Hey, Donna. Before we go too much further, are the speakers on your computer turned off? Because I'm getting, like, an echo yep. from your... Uh, okay. My, my speakers are not on. Okay. All right. Well, I just wanted to be sure. Um, yeah, this is this is exciting. I, I think this whole series has been... Um, you know, just very innovative and something new that we've not done before. We've interviewed authors, but not as a whole series in one publishing house. So it, uh, it's really great to have yet another author from Wild Blue Press. Yes, um, they certainly are giving us giving us the stage, and it's, uh, it, it's very um, gratifying to me. And I've made so many um, great new friends as uh, and our and our next guest is, is certainly an example of that. Um, so should we just kind of jump in with both feet? What do you think? I, I Go think for should, it. Okay, I will. Um, okay, our our uh, esteemed author friend is uh, Bradley Nickel. He's a, a 23-year veteran of the Las Vegas uh, Police Department. And um, I don't think he necessarily had a hidden talent, but it just it, it it hadn't come to fruition yet. And from speaking with him at length, I think he he got the bug and he the passion. And his talents are well displayed in this book of repeat offender. And not only is he uh, you know an, an author of this initial book, but he's also made uh, a contributor to several uh, law enforcement publications as well. Um, and has an online presence. So, um, and this is a quite a unique story. Um, it is not about a homicide, but it it is just as intense and just as scary. And uh, so, I'd like to bring him on this evening right now. And uh, and Brad, I'd like to say uh, good evening and welcome to Shutter Lives. Thank you so much for appearing with us. Good evening, Donna and, and Delilah. Where you guys are at? It's. Uh... It's the mid-afternoon here in Las Vegas, and it's nice and warm, 70, 77 degrees right now. Oh, uh, I know that a lot of people around the country are experiencing a lot of, of uh, cold weather, and, and uh, I invite them to come to Las Vegas and take some time off. 
Well, uh, I'll I'll keep that in the back of my mind for sure. <laughs> it's still plenty snowy here. Can't even see when you're driving for the snowbanks, you know. But sure. uh, yeah, I know. Um, we there there are a number of topics that that we discussed in terms of um, trying to cover this evening, and I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. But let's let's give it a good stab. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's not a good pun. My apologies. Um, why don't we start with the fact that you were, uh, you know, you called yourself an ordinary person, a guard variety, law enforcement person, detective, and all of a sudden in, in the um, in, in the course of doing the job, it became very evident that this was a very special story to tell. So how did, how did that all evolve for our listeners, uh, Brad? Well, I had been a detective in Las Vegas. Uh, I was a police officer since 1990 and uh, became a detective in 1999. And after several years uh, of being in a unit, this, the unit that I'm in, we specialize in in uh, investigating and, and, and seeing that uh, repeat criminals are prosecuted, people that are in and out of the system repeatedly throughout their adult lives. And uh, that can be quite unique in and of itself because it's a, a certain kind of criminal uh, that that finds a, a flavor for for the criminal life. You know, sometimes you'll come across uh, true crime stories that that uh, deal with murderers or something where where somebody has committed a crime of passion and maybe they hadn't had much criminal uh, involvement in their lives in the past or something. These are people that we're dealing with that, uh, for a variety of reasons, have chosen to live a criminal lifestyle throughout most of their adult lives. And the unit that I'm in, we focus our efforts upon those people to try and protect our community. Um, we find that those people that are that are that fall in that category, they commit more crimes than the average criminal. And uh, if we can if we can remove them from society, we're able to uh, reduce the crime rate drastically. So um, I have been working in that unit for a number of years, and uh, this investigation came across my desk of a man ma- named uh, Damon Monroe. And uh, this investigation changed my life. It, it was one of those investigations that even uh, most police officers don't see in their careers. Something that comes wrong uh, maybe once in a career for only a few seasoned uh, police officers. And uh, about a couple of years after this investigation began, this was a long-term investigation, uh, there were some events that took place that, that pretty much let me know that uh, this thing was than anything else and and that somebody needed to tell the public about it. Somebody needed to write a book. And uh, here we are today. So, in other words, this this uh, the um, subject of this book... Uh, uh, you you did not go looking for a topic to write. This kind of chose you as a matter of circumstance. Is that right? No, absolutely not. I mean, all my all my life, I wanted to be a police officer ever since I was a small child, uh, right. and I was able to, I was able to fulfill that dream. And I had no interest in being a writer. In fact, I read uh, books very rarely. It wasn't something that was in my in my uh, you know behavior. I just I was a good policeman and and uh, a family man and raising a family and doing all the things that family people do and, and uh, mm-hmm. watching TV and, and living that kind of life. <laughs> and then this, this investigation happened, and I knew that somebody needed to write a book about it uh, to tell the public. And 
I don't think there would probably be any anybody better suited to do so than, than me because I had a bird's eye view. I was the lead detective in the case. I had mm-hmm. a conversation with my father-in-law. He's a, a university, uh, Christian university professor, and, and I told him about this case. And he's always been really interested in, in uh, police work and the things that I do and stuff, and we have conversations. But he said, well, why don't you write a book about it? And I thought, well, what would I how can I write a book? I don't know. The first thing about writing a book. And mm-hmm. uh, that that day began my journey into learning how to become a writer and uh, writing a book and, and going through that process. I started writing the manuscript, the first draft, in the spring of 2008. And this manuscript has been written, rewritten 21 times. And uh, I think we've arrived at a place where I think the people that read it are going to enjoy it. Wow, 21 times a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And, hey, perhaps before we go on, I don't want to be neglectful. We are promoting your book as well, and we're going to be selling it um, during this during this broadcast. So let me tell you what um, Steve Jackson and his good people have come up for a promotion. Um, he, he told us that we are going to be selling your book during this project for 99 cents, and we will give away 25 free copies of Repeat Offender to the first 25 listeners who write to info at wildpress.com and put Saturn 5 in the subject line. Okay? So that that is the promotion for everyone. A 99 cents, first uh, 25 people that write in, uh, you get a free copy and write to uh, info at wildwoodpress.com and put Shatter Life in the subject line. So let's uh, let's hope that we, I know that we'll get that response and more. And beyond the 25, it's up to you to purchase. It's still a very good deal and it's a wonderful book, so we encourage you to, to buy it through Amazon. And where else is it available, Brad? Um, probably the best place to find it right now is at wildwoodpress.com. Slash repeat offender. That's the sales page at Wild Blue Press for the book. And uh, right now it's on sale for pre-orders for Kindle. The release date is April 14th of this Mm -hmm. year. Um, And they'll be having pre-orders coming up pretty soon for other uh, formats and print uh, pre-orders as well here pretty soon. But right now it's up for for a Kindle pre-order at wildbluepress.com slash repeat offender. Okay, that's great. Delilah, why don't why don't you um take some of the the questioning right now and then I'll get into some of them if you like. Sure. Well I was really interested in the fact and I think you covered it a little bit, um the 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 criminal that was actually the basis for this book that you talk about, um how he changed your life, this whole investigation and maybe you can go into that a little bit for our listeners without giving away the whole book. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, when when the the, uh, the case came across my desk, um, this man, Mr. Damon Monroe, had been arrested by a couple of patrolmen for uh, a late night break-in at a, uh, a crystal shop, a, a high-end um, oriental collectible store. Um, and uh, I started looking into this and the possibility of whether or not um, Mr. Monroe would be a good candidate for a three strikes case. Basically, somebody, uh, everybody's heard of the three strikes laws in California. We have similar laws in Nevada, 
for habitual criminals. And it's my, it's my job to make evaluations on cases and make a determination as to whether a particular criminal with a set, particular set of circumstances, whether or not that should be uh, kind of put down that path of being a three strikes case. Well, Mr. Monroe, when I first started investigating him, he was already a 19-time convicted felon, and he had spent three different terms of prison uh, in his adult life. And so he was obviously very clear, clearly a good candidate for a three-strikes case, um, somebody that had been victimizing the people of Las Vegas for a number of years. Um, and uh, without going into all the details, because it's, it's quite a long story, and, and that's what makes it so interesting with some of the things that happen in the, in the midst of the story, um, uh, during this investigation, uh, we ended up uh, serving search warrants at his home and we discovered storage units that he had had and we recovered uh, what we estimate to be somewhere around $6 million in stolen goods. This wasn't like uh, a trailer full of uh, uh, wares that you would go buy from Walmart. This was stuff like... Uh, art gallery material, you know, uh, stuff from auction houses. Uh, there was a, a letter from Abraham Lincoln, an authentic letter. There was uh, incredible sports memorabilia, um, stuff from Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth and, and Pete Rose, uh, football stuff from Joe Namath and John Elway, uh, Joe Montana, uh, wow. boxing, boxing gloves that were signed by Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, Mike Tyson. Uh, rock and roll, gold records from the Beatles and Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, uh, uh, Hollywood stuff from uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, high-end electronics like stuff from uh, sound recording studios, professional studios, professional equipment in the in the numbers of hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment. There were rare coin collections, rare stamps, rare paper money. There were artifacts from the Titanic wreck. There was just all well, this. Well, over what period of time, um, Brad, was this that he collected all these things? Well, he collected all these things over a period of, from what we believe to be his last uh, prison stay when he got out in 2000 to when mm -hmm. uh, the investigation took place in 2006. So it took about six years or so for him to amass all of this stuff. And what he was doing is he was parting it out. He was selling things here and there. And a lot of the work that he did, he would break into these businesses um, because somebody had, had found something and actually ordered it up. And he would go in there with a shopping list and collect those things. And if he saw anything else good that he wanted to take, he would take that too. He was your uh, eBay, huh? eBay absolutely. Probably oh the most God. prolific. Yeah, he was probably the most prolific commercial burglar we've ever come across in Las Vegas. It was unprecedented. Um the, the number of things that we found that were stolen. We impounded something uh, in, the, in the area of 2,000 different items of stolen property that we found in the house and the storage units that he had. And by the way, um, for people that, that buy the book, we're going to have a special page set up at Wild Blue Press where we're going to have a bunch of uh, crime scene photographs. It's going to show you all that good stuff. Oh, really? All right. Yeah. That's, so anyway, that's uh, the investigation... Yeah, yeah. It, it will be pretty cool. We're gonna we're gonna handpick a lot of the different. I mean, there are hundreds of crime scene photographs, but there's gonna be a lot of good stuff where you're gonna you're gonna see these photographs of things, and you're gonna be like, wow, somebody had that stuff and they stole it from them. Just incredible things, things that well, only know, probably Brad, a, before, a billionaire could have. Before you go too too much further in in talking about this, is there 
was this guy like working alone or was he who was he answering to mm-hmm. anyone <clears throat> excuse me um he wasn't answering to anybody he was the king of his organization but he had a small group of friends that he operated with and uh you know they had their own little clique and even some competition with each other in within the group um to to be the number 2 guy but at the time when i was investigating him uh, he was uh, accompanied by a man named Brian Ferguson, was his number two guy. He was his lookout. And they would break into businesses at nighttime, and uh, they were very crafty at being able to do so. They were comp- These were accomplished burglars. These were guys that did their homework, people that uh, did research on burglary alarm schematics. And, yeah, they and, went on uh, the Internet and said, how do I become a better burglar, right? <laughs> Absolutely, they sure did. We had computers that we removed from their homes, and we we had forensic examinations done on their computers, and they were they were actually studying on how to be better burglars. Uh, so this is a, a true career criminal in, in in every nature of that sense of that word. Well, it sounds but like was, it sounds like the hole in the wall game. <laughs> like I like I said, there were there were. There were people involved in law enforcement with this investigation, and, and the total number of years of experience we had were probably probably numbered in a few hundred years, and none of us had ever seen anything like this before. Wow, that's interesting. And all the, all these goods were amassed, and I know from talking to you and reading the material, some of the material that they were they, was it amassed in his in his home in the um, this Updale community where he lived, or they didn't put it in some little, uh, you know, storage unit, right? I mean, where well, did they, they keep these valuable things? He had an awful lot of it in his home, and he actually had a hole in his garage that went up into the attic. That he had a lot of it stored up in there. Uh, but yeah. he lived like a king. When we walked into his house that day, when we served the search warrant, uh, it was like walking into Aladdin's cave. I couldn't believe what I saw. Everything I saw in that house was. It just blew me away. It was like I walked into a Saudi Arabian prince's home. Uh, sure. But this, I knew that I knew that this guy wasn't gainfully employed. He'd never actually drawn a real paycheck, and uh, so that was a clue that something was wrong. But he also had four storage units, large storage units around town that he would uh, uh, put a lot of his stolen stuff in. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder too when you say that initially he had nineteen convictions and you know was incarcerated. What what kind of time do you get for nineteen convictions and for being perpetually let out of jail nineteen times before you continued or escalate to a, a higher crime? Well, I think it exposes a lot of weakness in our criminal justice system where we've got people who are repeat criminals that uh, are doing the same things over and over again, and they continue to get uh, uh, weak sentences from judges or they get weak plea deals from prosecutors. And there's a number of reasons that why that happens. I'm not, I'm not trying to point my finger at a bad judge or a bad prosecutor. There's a lot of different things that go into why uh, sentences, I think, are sometimes a lot smaller than what the public uh, would, would want to see. But, um, but this is not unusual, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, the unit that I work in, like I said, the re- repeat offender program, for us to come across somebody who's out there walking the streets victimizing people in our community that has uh, a dozen or more felony convictions on their record, that's not unusual. And it's not unique to Las Vegas either. That happens in mm-hmm. every major city in, in the United States. 
Wow. Can can you talk a little bit about what we sh- we uh, spoke of yesterday and off the air about about the uniqueness of your unit, the re- or what's known as rope? Um, well, like I said, the repeat offender program. We're a, we're a covert unit. We do most of our work uh, wearing blue jeans and t-shirts, and uh, we we don't try to look like police officers. And what we do is we try to locate these repeat criminals in our community, and if we can find them. Uh, We like to get in their back pocket and follow them around and catch them committing new crimes in progress because those seem to be the richest uh, uh, ground for for, uh, these criminals with new charges being treated as habitual criminals when you actually have police officers there witnessing them commit the crimes. Uh, Like I said earlier, there are a lot of different reasons why some cases don't end up with the result that we want. Sometimes uh, victims become uncooperative or you have crimes where uh, criminals are committing crimes against people that don't have very good records themselves and they don't present themselves as good witnesses in court, any number of, of reasons why. But when you've got police officers on surveillance undercover out following these crooks around and watching them break into cars or break into homes or steal purses or do, do robberies of stores, things like that, uh, we find that, that those are very productive in trying to get people uh, put in prison for a longer period of time. Yeah, it sounds like you'd really make a big dent in 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 the rate of crime. And but didn't you share with us off air that these kinds of units there's not that many across the country, or they're they're not as in full favor as they used to be? Yeah, I think uh, you know. Well, we've seen in California, you've seen what's happened to the three strikes laws there with the habitual criminals, uh, the defense bar and the ACLU and some of those entities have done a good job of of creating a certain narrative that makes it seem as though we're putting people in prison for too long. Uh, and they get the attention of the legislators uh, of these of these uh, jurisdictions who have an interest in, in emptying the prison sometimes because that's one of the biggest difficult budget things that they have to deal with. You know, when, when money is spent in state and local governments, uh, one of the first things they look at is, is uh, how do they cut the money? Well, one of the mm-hmm. easiest ways to cut money is empty the prisons. And uh, we've seen that happen in California recently where uh, some different things happened that, that emptied some of their prisons. And they're going to pay the price at some point where the crime rate's going to go back up. And, and rather than the taxpayers carrying the burden of p- keeping people incarcerated and, and, and segregated from society, uh, you're going to end up having the taxpayers pay the money out of the loss of, the, of, of being victims of crime. Mm. Um, yeah. What have you seen as far as the impact of uh, privatizing the prison system? Has there been? You know, I'm not that familiar with that process because here in the state of Nevada, we don't have private prisons. Uh, everything is still run through the state and stuff like that. So I don't have firsthand experience of it. I know there's been a lot of uh, comment in the public about how uh, privatizing prisons turns it into a business and the business has to be fed so uh, now all of a sudden we've got the police departments or law enforcement people uh, uh, putting people in prison to feed that animal. I'm not necessarily one that would uh, invoke that type of a conspiracy theory. I think um, the root cause of crime and, and people being incarcerated is that they did something wrong. But um, it I'm not necessarily opposed to privatizing the prisons if it's something that's beneficial to the to the budget crisis, you know, and, and, and the money issues that, that our legislators and, and government people have to deal with. 
but it has to be done in a way that's regulated and that, that there's over, plenty of oversight from the people. I'm definitely somebody that's a fan of of uh, the people being in charge of government. Mm-hmm. Well, what is, um, I'm thinking in terms of he was so skilled at honing his craft to being a, a a burglar, but do these do these perpetrators ever escalate to to uh, homicide or whatnot? I know that we can get into a little bit about another very personal crime that that he was committing, but what seems to be the pattern with with this kind of uh, criminal? I was thinking of Joshua Homo Sardesky, uh, Dr. Pettit murders, and we did touch on that yesterday. Is there a comparison there? I think there is. I think uh, it's not it's not something that is uh, necessarily consistent. I think you still have to look at each uh, individual on a case-by-case basis. But I have seen it quite often in my 16 years of being a detective in this unit uh, where we've seen people escalate their criminal behavior. I mean, think about it naturally, just to, even as, as a citizen, logically, Somebody doesn't start robbing banks is the very first thing they do. They, they've done some type of other criminal activity before that, and they become comfortable with committing crime. And then they escalate their crime into a new level where they're trying to achieve something different. Sometimes you've got drugs involved. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, sometimes uh, uh, criminals are committing drugs. You've got street crime going on with people that are habitual drug users. Uh, but one thing you'll find in this story with Mr. Monroe is he was very proud of the fact that he had never used drug or, drugs or alcohol in his life. Mm. And he, he, he was very proud of that fact because he knew that it made him a better burglar. He wasn't a burglar because he was chasing a drug habit. He wasn't a criminal because he had a, a, an alcohol or drug problem. He was a criminal because he loved it. He liked living on that side of the law. Uh, um, good. Uh, you know, in a lot of these um scenario, there is a, a woman behind the man or someone that's kind of a holder of all the secrets. Is there is there a person in, in this book that is portrayed as that? There is. There's a girl uh, that Mr. Monroe had been with since she was only 14 years old. Uh, and uh, he had been seeing her and they started having children when she was very young. And uh, I think after his first, uh, or during his first prison stay, he still communicated with her from the prison, and she told him uh, she wasn't a criminal. You know, she told him that uh, things needed to change when he got out of prison. That she wanted things to be different. That she wanted to live a normal life. And and uh, he flat out told her, uh, no way, things are going to be the same. When I get back home, we're going right back to business. And uh, she stayed with him for a number of years because they had children together, and, and she'd been with him since she was 14. She didn't know anything else. So it was kind of a uh, maybe a, a self-made prison that she'd gotten herself into. But she told me that she knew uh, all those years that at some point in time he was probably going to go to prison forever, and she was going to have to prepare for that. So she actually went and uh, started going to the community college uh, and, and got teaching credentials and started to become a teacher. She, when, when my investigation took place, she was a, a substitute school teacher in the Clark County School District. That was a whole thing on its own. You know, when I discovered that, and I'm sitting there thinking of my own kids, and I'm thinking of this woman who's living with this guy who's a career criminal, I'm thinking she's, she's teaching kids in the public school district 
I mean, I'm just it kind of turned my stomach. But uh, something that was that was one of the better parts of the the story um, of this investigation and of the book is it's a redemption story because she went through what I would describe as a, a pretty significant level of destruction in her life where everything she knew was removed. And she even ended up uh, running the risk of, of going to prison herself and, and and losing her kids for a period of time. And uh, she ended up turning state's evidence and testifying against Mr. Monroe. And in exchange for that, she uh, was able to stay out of prison. And she's turned her life around. And, and uh, uh, I think there's a pretty good uh, element of struggle there and uh, some, some really interesting psychological aspects of that. And also a story of redemption, where where she's spread her wings and she's become a new woman, and I'm proud of her. Wow, it, that that's just amazing. You know, when when we were chatting about that and the influence you had on her. Um, in, initially, did he get convicted for statutory rape or you know child molestation or whatever? And this was occurring when she was 14 years old, or um, well, or something. When my investigation took place, she was already in her early 20s. So um, to go back and, and try to do something like that, where she would at, she would probably have been an uncooperative victim uh, regarding that aspect. Um, I don't think it's anything that probably would have gotten a lot of traction with the courts. Because he groomed her through the years, and and they immediately started having children, or shortly after. I, I don't. I don't think she started having children uh, until she was older than 16. Um, and in the state of Nevada, unfortunately, 16 is the age of consent. So um, it, it would have been okay for them to have relations at that point in time. So, like I said, it would have been it would have been something that probably, if we had really dug our teeth into it, uh, we could have mm-hmm. proven something. But I don't think the courts would have done much with it because she was. Uh, Cooperative all the way into her adult years. Mhm. Wow. Well, um, with you know, I'm thinking back when we had our first show with Steve Jackson and and, and Boogeyman, because his book focuses on the the trials and tribulations of law enforcement in solving the cases and. I'm wondering, in knowing some of the, the the very dangerous things that you went through, fortunately, you know, was a lot of this story about what you went through, and I, I would really like you to share some of that because it was very harrowing. I don't know how you ever lived through what you did. Could you? Would you be willing to describe some of that for us? Sure. Probably the the most. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. The most interesting area of the story might be the information that um, uh, at, at one point in time after the, the investigation of all the search warrants and all the stolen property and everything came to a head, um, Mr. Monroe was incarcerated in jail and it was awaiting trial. At that point in time, his daughters um, started revealing to school officials that he had been sexually abusing them. And I'm not going to go real deep into that because uh, there's some privacy concerns that I want to respect there, but that once that took place and he was actually ended up being charged with uh, sex crimes, uh, it seemed that that maybe had triggered his rage, where he targeted um, 
myself and a prosecutor and a judge for murder. And he was actually trying to hire someone from the jail or, or from within the jail. Uh, he was trying to hire somebody to have us killed. And uh, our, our organized crime bureau at Metro, that, that's what we call our police department here, our organized crime bureau uh, did an undercover investigation where they were able to substantiate the charges of soliciting murder. And he was actually trying to have some somebody from the Sereños in Southern California or maybe perhaps the Mexican Mafia to Las Vegas and, and take out me and a prosecutor and a judge. It was so serious uh, for a period of time that, that the police department here um, tasked a squad of detectives to conduct uh, covert surveillance on the judge's house for, for a few weeks where the judge had a, a private security detail, you know, uh, of police officers that followed her around to make sure nothing happened. Um, the prosecutor and the lowly detective didn't get any such protection detail. And uh, for no, a period of about, no. no, for a period of about four months, um, uh, I sat at night, you know, uh, sleeping in my bed with a loaded uh, assault rifle next to my bed, waiting for someone to break into the house and uh, and hopefully have a bad day for themselves. Why did only the judge get protection? I can't answer that question. I'm not one of the leaders on the that, that make that kind of a call. Uh, but the the, the the people that make that decision believe that it was serious enough for the judge to get that type of attention, and maybe they thought I was capable of uh, providing that for myself. I'm not sure. Well, I, I can't imagine what it's like on a daily, on a day-to-day basis for your your family in terms of the precautions you had to, you know, in the in the alterations in your lifestyle. What did you go through with your family? It was difficult. I mean, psychologically, it's challenging. As policemen, we're not afraid of the darkness. I mean, we face the darkness every day when we go to work. But when you start to introduce that into my home, into my family, that's something that's challenging. Uh, like like we've never we've never experienced before, um, the uh, the idea that that someone might target me for murder or whatever is something that I can deal with if I'm out there doing my job. But if somebody wants to bring that to my house, it's a whole other another affair. Um, you know, for a number of years I've been doing surveillance on these criminals, following them around town, and they have they have counter uh, surveillance tactics that they use to to try and detect whether or not the police are following them. And uh, we call some of that, some of those maneuvers, we call those tail checks where the bad guy's checking his tail. Uh, Well, for a period of time, I'm going to and from work and whatever I'm doing on my weekend and whatever, and I'm doing tail checks of my own. All of a sudden I'd be driving down a street and maybe somebody had been following me for too long and I'd I'd do a tail check and try to find out if this person really is following me or not. And there were a couple times during this time period where I thought somebody was following me, and it became pretty hair-raising. Uh, I'll save that for the book. There, some of those stories were mm-hmm. told there. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, yeah. something that, that came out of the book, and I'll read. I'll quote this. Uh, this came from the book, and this is what I said about uh, the of this. On a more personal level, Damon introduced fear into my family, a new kind of uncertainty born from the plot to kill me. It changed how my kids think about the world. It changed how my wife thinks about her safety. It challenged me in ways that I'd never been before and haven't been since. Even now, the first thought with any unexpected knock at our door is the expectance of danger. 
I've considered leaving Las Vegas when I retire and taking further steps to become anonymous, but that's a rabbit hole with no end. Security won't come from those things. It will only come from knowing who lays out my path. Damon Monroe came home with me in September of 2006 and hasn't left my house yet, but that doesn't make him the architect of my future. Wow, that's very powerful, that that passage. I, I just can't imagine having to live your, your life like that. Do you, do you feel as if now um, you have some type of resolution? I mean, with, we, we're not going to give away the ending either, but can we say that he was convicted, right? Well, he was convicted, yes, and... Uh, I'm, I'm, I feel very safe that I'll never have to deal with Damon Monroe uh, standing on my doorstep, but uh, I feel also just as certain that if Damon Monroe were ever able to figure out uh, how to form some plot from the prison walls uh, to have me or, or the prosecutor killed, that he would certainly do that just out of spite and out of revenge. Wow. I'm I'm just also wondering what was did you have any point in time where you had the opportunity to sit down and interact with him? What was he like interpersonally? Did you get a sense that there was some, you know, um, he was a he, he was a sociopath as well, or he just reveled well, in his attention or? I mean, yeah, I'm, what I'm was not a, wrong with him that he did this? I mean, what was your sense of him? I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't give right. him a, a, a medical diagnosis. But right. I am familiar. Right. I am familiar with um, with his personality. I mean, I listened to hundreds of hours of phone calls that him and his friends had made uh, between the jail and his house. So I was very intimately aware of his personality, is the the nature of the way he speaks. I mean, if I heard him speak on a telephone today, I'd recognize his voice as if he were one of my friends. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there, there's definitely some, some psychotic uh, elements to this man, and that was evidenced in, in some different hearings that the courts have held where his attorneys were actually trying to have him found to be uh, incompetent to assist in his own defense. Uh, he spent some time in the in the state mental facility here, incarcerated, uh, where the state has been trying to evaluate and treat him for for various uh, issues involving his mental health. Um, at what point in time, through one of the uh, appeals that he had made and his, and his defense attorneys had made through the Nevada Supreme Court, uh, there were some documents that were that were made public through the, the Supreme Court's website where I was able to read some of the evaluations that the doctors had made upon him. Um, but what I do know is that it, his upbringing was pretty cloudy. Um, uh, he had led uh, his girlfriend to believe that he had killed his father when he was a teenager and that he had spent time in the California Youth Authority for it. But this isn't true. What the, the reason why he wanted to create that appearance is not known to me because I, I haven't been able to ask him. But the truth is his father, Floyd, died of cancer in 1992, and his mother, Ruby, she died in 1997 while he was in prison, while Damon was in prison. But before she died, she revealed some things that uh, the girlfriend would never have learned otherwise from, from Mr. Monroe. Um, uh, he was raised here in Las Vegas and. Uh, from they moved here in 1973. His parents did, 
they lived out by Nellis Air Force Base. Um, his mother had said to uh, to some people that he had been anorexic, teen years old, and it caused severe damage to his personality. And she said that he subsequently tried to remake his entire identity. Not long after that is when he started using false names and trying to uh, uh, live a different sort of lifestyle where he was uh, really, uh, his appearance was really important to him. He was always worried about making sure his hair was bleached blonde. Uh, There was a real sort of strangeness to it. Um, uh, He ended up having a very over-controlling personality. He dropped out of high school. Um, He was always concerned with being right and winning any argument. It evolved into him being able to convince himself of things that cannot be true. Uh, He ended up believing that I searched his house and his storage units without having the authorization of a search warrant from a judge, despite incontrovertible evidence to the contrary. Uh, we've got the search warrants. There are exhibits in court documents that show that these search warrants exist. But even to this day, he's filing papers with the Nevada Supreme Court trying to claim that these search warrants never existed and that his rights were violated. Uh, he actually convinced himself to believe that a senior uh, district court judge helped the police cover cover up the, the alleged police misconduct by signing mm-hmm. backdated warrants. Uh, his, his behavior has led a lot of people to believe he's mentally incompetent, like his attorneys, and that he's delusional. But um, through those documents that I mentioned on up in the Nevada Supreme Court website, where it actually uh, revealed some of the doctor's evaluations, like many hardcore criminals, uh, he has antisocial personality disorder. He was obsessive, and he's probably the most narcissistic person that I've ever encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's ever been able to show any genuine concern for other people for any sustained period of time. Um, the uh, the report stated that he was a classic example of someone with an antisocial personality disorder and that one doctor even said he's extremely narcissistic and obsessive with an enormous self of self-importance. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I it mean, does, really. absolutely. It, um, it certainly does. Um, I want to know if, if perhaps it, anywhere in the book, maybe toward the end, did you get into any of his victims? I mean, I know that these were very wealthy possessions and perhaps wealthy victims, but they were still victims none the same. And did, did you have any contact with them? And how did how did all that play out in terms of them getting back these possessions? And um, what can you say about that? Um, not a lot of that information made it into the book because, frankly, that we're getting their stuff back, you know, people that, <laughs> that, that, that were victimized. Not boring to me and not boring to them, but maybe boring to the average person that's trying to read a book that's exciting and, you know, has a thrilling ending and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, I, did, I did have a lot of personal interaction with the victims of these crimes. Uh, there were some of these people who lost their, lost their livelihood because he would go in and clean out their entire business. And, and, and uh, uh, there were actually a couple of people that lost their businesses because of what he had done to them. So I'm yeah. very much I'm very much in tune with uh, crime victims and, and uh, the things that, that Mr. Monroe did to them and, and how the, he altered their lives. You know, for me personally, 
I believe people that are victims of burglary, I don't believe that, that we should classify them as nonviolent crime victims versus crime, violent crime victims. <clears throat> Pardon me, because if you if you talk to somebody that's had their, their possessions taken from them, it's like a kick in the gut, and it's like uh, they can never go back into their home or into their business or wherever their thing, wherever their space was violated, they'll never go back in that place and feel the same again. So that has a pretty lasting effect upon them, and it's something that, that I think our courts should take a greater interest in and stop listening to the uh, to the to some of the defense uh, bar and ACLU types that are trying to say that uh, these these criminals aren't hurting anybody because it's nonviolent crime. Yeah, well, it it certainly is different than than having you know having a loved one taken, and I'm certain that. Uh, you know, those children of, of his uh, that were sexually abused, I hope that, you know, he's prosecuted to, to the fullest extent of the law for that as well. Well, he's but, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and uh-huh. the, charges, the charges relating to the sex abuse case, uh, those are still pending. pending. Uh, in, okay. fact, in fact, it was supposed to go to trial this month, but I think there was another delay. That case has been delayed for a very long time, uh, and, and I think there's a... Certainly, something lost in justice there. When when justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, these girls that have been victimized, they've been they've been drugged through this now for uh, an eight or nine years, and I think a long time. I think that's a really horrible thing. Horrible. It speaks badly towards our justice system for sure. It, it sure does. Um, you know, one of the um, topics that we touched on the other evening that I think is very interesting, and we are doing a, a series here in terms of author, is just kind of your insight into um, discovering how much you loved writing. And I, I would love to know how uh, how you actually got involved with Wild, Wild Press as well and what you have to say about your experience with them thus far. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve Jackson has taken me under his wing, and I've got nothing but great things to say about him. Uh, um, the process that it that it took to, to uh, be delivered into his hands was something that was that was difficult. Uh, I mean, the true crime genre in in uh, the bookstores and in the, in the literary world is suffering right now, uh, as far as books go, because. Uh, there's true crime all over the television. A lot of people that used to buy true crime books are now just turning on the television and even sometimes watching their favorite true crime authors have their own TV shows. So that, you know, that with combined with the, uh, the dishevelment that has taken place in the, in the book industry altogether with brick and mortar bookstores going down the tubes and, uh, the, the advent of e-publishing 300,000 or more tight new titles every year with self-published, uh, titles, uh, it's difficult for a new writer to rise above the noise and actually get noticed. So I think there's an awful lot of good writing going on out there with awful, an awful lot of good stories that, that never get the attention that maybe they deserve because uh, a lot of things are kind of in a mess right now. But um, uh, I ended up uh, in contact with a, a, a very respectable agent. His name's Chip McGregor. He's very respected in the industry. And uh, Chip had told me that I've got a really great story, but my writing wasn't good enough. And talk about a, you know, a punch in the eye. But 
I'm I'm a thick skinned guy, and I think writers have to be because you have to be able to accept rejection uh, mm-hmm. because you're going to get an awful lot of it if you want to be a successful writer. Um, and I took that rejection as motivation to get better, uh, which is why I ended up rewriting this manuscript 21 times. And I started writing in the spring of 2008, and here we are, what seven years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's taken a long time for me to actually learn how to write in such a way that, that the writing professionals think it can be, be produced commercially and be successful. Uh, and it, it was a long journey. But getting Chip on board was, was ha- the hardest thing of all, I think. It took two years for Chip to finally say, hey, your writing has caught up with the story. That was a, a pretty good pat on the back from somebody that's pretty a pretty tough nut to crack. So um, Chip ended up trying to sell the, sell the uh, book proposal to a bunch of major publishers, and, and they all said the same thing. They loved the story, but uh, they weren't willing to take the risk on a new writer in a, a, a genre that's already have already having trouble uh, selling a lot of books. It all comes down to how many books can be sold for the big publishers, for sure. Hmm. And even for the so small publishers, so that's even those of us that are writing, um, uh, you know, things that have to do with with, with true crime. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think it should. I don't think it should deter you. I think it should motivate you to work harder. Okay. Well, I'm I'm not afraid of that. It's my middle name. But I'm just wondering for other people that are listening and saying, well, gee, I have this manuscript that's very collecting dust. Is it even worth it? Um, I would say continue to work on it and, and try to get your manuscript in the hands of some people that, that you know, have a pretty good ear to the ground in the business and whether or not they can make a judgment as to as to whether it could be successful. And if they think it can, continue to continue to build that and make sure you build a platform because platform is everything nowadays. You have to be able to have uh, an audience, which is what your platform is. Are people actually going to listen? How are you going to rise above that noise of the 300,000 or more titles being published every year? All right. This seems incredible. Delilah, um what insight can I know you have a lot of more experience than I do with regard to some of your clients doing this kind of activity. What what have you learned, Delilah, from um talking to to these people in this series that I mean it's just so invaluable to me. Well I think you know, I think I think Bradley hit it on, on the head with the fact that you've got to build your platform, you've got to build your audience and it's it's something that authors you know writers want to write they don't want to they don't want to market they don't want to have to do all of the things that go along with it but it in this day and age and and i think you know you can you can back me up on that bradley it's it's a it's a must you have to absolutely i think it's part of the reason part of the reason why uh steve jackson and wild blue press has brought me on because i did this this whole time as I was writing the manuscript 21 different times and doing all this stuff and actually waiting waiting for the ending to actual ha- actually happen before I could write the ending, um, that gave me the time to be able to, one, grow as a writer and get better, and two, spend time building a platform. You know, I went to Google. Google's like the best information source in the whole universe. Punch into Google, how do I build a platform? Start reading what everybody's telling you. People blog about it. There's there's any numbers of good in, people that are providing uh, good information out there that will tell you some of the things that you can do. 
You got to get a Twitter account. You got to start working on Facebook. You got to get a website. You got to do a blog. You got to do all these different things and start getting people interested. And uh, there's, you know, you can drill all that down into the very uh, metrics of how many people are making visits to your page and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, you just have to start making noise about what it is you're doing and do it in such a way that it gets people interested. Yeah, it it sounds uh it sounds overwhelming but, but for those of us that at least have, you know, a foothold in some of that, um, I won't be deterred. In the future I think it I will I will get there too and with the the good advice that you offer I, I think I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna keep going down that road. But tell I us about you. Well, thank you. Um, tell us about where you where we could write reviews. We we haven't touched on that in a little while, and I want to beat that drum because it's so important that the people, whether you get your book this evening for ninety nine cents or not, reviews are very important. T- t- tell us about that, especially with your first book, right, Brad? Absolutely, reviews are massively important. I can't stress that enough, especially for first time writers, but for any writer. Especially in, mm-hmm. in the true crime genre, where 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 the, the genre is starting to struggle a little bit because of television. Um, think about it. Most people, when they go uh, look for a book on Amazon or whatever outlet they're looking at, if there's a, a, a spot there on the page where other readers are providing a review, we don't ignore those. We look at those. Not as writers, but as readers. The readers are looking at those. Hey, what did this guy say about? How come? How come he's got such a bad rating uh, on his reviews? How come he doesn't have any five star ratings and he's got all these one star ratings? What does that mean? You know, that deters a lot of people from buying those books and actually right. being able to experience the writing that that maybe uh, they wanted to to see. So, um, I know that the uh, the Kindle version. Uh, and other versions of, of Repeat Offender are going to be available on Amazon. And uh, anybody who reads the book, I encourage you to please, please take two seconds out of your day and write a review and tell people what you think about the book, whether you thought it was good or bad. I want the bad, too, uh, because that's how we get better. But if you thought the book was great and you enjoyed it, let me know. Yeah. Leave a well, right and there. share it with other people. Share, you know, if you if you're on social media, everybody's sharing everything. So if you've read a good book and you really liked it, you liked the author, share it with other people within your circle of friends or or oh, yeah. someone yeah. out there needs to Absolutely. know about it. So you know, it's the like blood of authors. Absolutely. Yeah, go, Something yeah. else I would encourage people to do is is go to Wild Blue Press, uh, the Wild Blue Press website and uh, sign up for their newsletter because they're going to be putting out some stuff, some information and, and special deals and, and some other things here in the near future where um, uh, people are going to be satisfied with the things that they're going to get in their email box. And, and they've already promised a million times that they're not going to give anybody's email address away to anybody or sell it to some spammer. But uh, I encourage people to go to Wild Blue Press and sign up for their newsletter. I also encourage people to go uh, to my website, my blog. I've and what's blog that? I've got a blog at bradleynickel.com, and I think mm-hmm. uh, people that are interested in victims and interested in writing and interested in law enforcement and uh, maybe interested in Las Vegas, you're going to find some interesting stuff there. I've got a lot of great posts that I've put up, and I've, I've had a, 
I've had the blog running since November, and I've already had almost twenty thousand page views. So wow. apparently, people apparently apparently people like it. So I'm proud of that. Yeah. But uh, BradleyNichols.com. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's BradleyNichols.com. B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-N-I-C-K-E-L-L.com. The two L's. Have your yeah. colleagues treated you any differently in law enforcement since you've become an author? Just curious. Um, I think there are some people that, you know, have have uh, looked at me a little crooked, like maybe I'm an outsider now, you know, but uh, uh, I'm still the same guy I always was. Um, there's also a lot of people that have, that have come up and patted me on the back and told me how proud of me they are, too. Well, I hope that's the majority. And what what's in your future in terms of putting pen to paper? Can you reveal what, what, what might be next in a general well, way? Got, I've got some other ideas, and so there there may actually end up being a part two to repeat offender, but uh, that remains really? to be seen. So, uh, oh. I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, I have some interest in maybe doing some uh, some fictional work as well. I think uh, it's a little harder because you have to be a smarter writer. Uh, the story doesn't tell itself, but in some ways it, it's easier because you can make stuff up and you don't have to stick by the truth. <laughs> Yeah, that that is that is for sure. So, um, you know, like I say, I think I think we've given people a pretty good framework. But what is there that we might have left out of the conversation in our in our parting minutes here that you would like our audience to know, Bradley? Um, probably the the final thing I would impart to people uh, about me. If you want to know a little bit more about me, you'll get that through my blog. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Crime Author, C R I M E Author. Uh-huh. That's my handle on Twitter. Um, and if you want to get a little bit deeper into who I am, uh, know that all things first in my life, I'm a Christian man, and I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. Okay, well, that's that's a wonderful note to end on, and I just want to thank you so much. And let's please do stay. In touch because I feel like we're uh, simpatico now, and you're part of the Shattered Life family. And thank you so much. It's a pleasure to know you and to have interviewed you this evening. And uh, Delilah, part words. Delilah. Oh, hi. I'm sorry. Oh, I, are you there? I forgot I had I forgot I had my phone on mute. There was a plane going over. I'm just Uh-oh. really happy that we had you on, Bradley. It's been a real pleasure, and can't wait for um, the next time. I, I think it, it's yeah. worth having you back. I think you have a lot more to tell I think us, you should. and um, look forward to the future. Yeah, I think that would be great, Donna and Delilah. I'm very thankful for you having me on your show. It's been a pleasure. Okay, it's our pleasure. Well, with those comments, we'll sign off for this evening, and I say good night to my national audience, new and old, and uh, be sure to come back next week. Thank you so much, and have a good evening, everyone.